in your bulletins, you have information about who I am, where I serve here in Minneapolis, um, places I've been. But what you don't know about me is that you see that I went to the University of Southern Mississippi for college, but I went there because that's where I lived. Um, I was born in Mississippi, in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, and uh, my father was a music professor at the University of Southern Mississippi, so I got to go to college for free. So, of course, that's what I did. And um, all of my formative years, all of my schooling up to that point had been in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. If you asked me if I was a racist, I would have told you no. No, I'm not a racist. I'm not a part of the Klan. My family's not a part of the Klan, never have been. My mom was from Ohio, my dad's from Michigan. We aren't really Mississippi, I'm the only one that was born there. Graduated from college, moved to Atlanta, Georgia, and learned that my language was rather racist. I never said the N-word, of course. But that's there's extreme. a- That's extreme. That's yeah. extreme, yeah. And there's a whole lot of other things that you can say, right? That are extremely racist. And living in Atlanta, I got called out on it, and I was so proud of myself because I fixed my language. And if you had asked me if I was a racist, I would have said, of course not, right? I live in Atlanta. I have neighbors of all colors living around me. I'm not a racist. Then I moved to Texas and lived there for, I don't know how many years, 20-something years, and uh, realized that people in Texas are racist. They are. I mean, that's what I learned because they don't like Latino Latinas. And I couldn't understand that because I knew racism where it should be directed, right? If you're racist, where it's directed because of where I'd lived in the Deep South. Well, then I had to learn that maybe I was a little racist. And I had friends that had me read some books because I kept telling people I grew up in Mississippi where nothing happened. <laughs> I lived in Hattiesburg where we all, when it was time to integrate for school, we all got on buses and we went and we weren't like Boston pushing bus to, buses over and there were no riots, we all just went. So my hometown had nothing. And then I had friends of color that began to tell me, you don't know about the house that was firebombed in your hometown? I kept saying, but it wasn't me, I'm not racist. I, I'm, I'm not racist. So then I moved to Minnesota almost five years ago, and I learned that I am so used to in-your-face racism that I don't even recognize it anymore. It's the not-in-your-face racism that I begin to see because, as we know, people in the North and the Midwest and on either side of the coast will say that they're not racist, that that happens in the South. And I'm in full agreement it happens in the South, believe me. Um, I lived it, I know it, uh, lived in the midst of it, I should say. And, but I began to see signs of it here in the Twin Cities, and, but nobody would really talk about it. I, didn't, I couldn't get people to really talk about it. And then we had um, murders in our city, which we've had for generations. But, all of a sudden, Jamar Clark was killed, and the city erupted. 
And then Philando Castile was killed and the city erupted and people were beginning to question how can this happen and why did this happen? And especially among clergy, it began to be this big discussion and how do we get out there and we're on the front lines and we're showing people how not to be racist. And we were doing all of that. We were doing all of the things that you do to show that you're not a racist. <laughs> but we were still very much a part of white supremacy. So much so that there was a week that I would say, Danny Gibbons would say it was the week from hell. I'm putting words in your mouth so you can correct me when you get a chance. Um, but it was the week that Philando was murdered and then he had a baby cousin that was murdered that same week. Two-year-old baby cousin. And Danny had to do the service the following week for this incredible, beautiful child. And he invited white clergy that he had been in conversation with to come to that service to just be support for him. And there were a few of us that showed up. But on this email list are probably, I don't know, 60, easily 60 white pastors. And when I talked to some of my colleagues about, well, why didn't people come? I was told, we are so tired. We're so tired from being out on the front line. We're so tired. And I found myself thinking, it must be nice for white people like me to have the luxury of being tired to where we don't have to go show up for something. And it hit me, ha I am a racist. And I am a participant in white supremacy. And I've got to work even more. It's been a journey since I was 21 years old, and it's continuing. My, I'm working on my doctor of ministry degree, and I came up with this idea, and I went to Danny, and I said, <laughs> you're going to think I'm crazy, but what if we did a Selma walk here in the Twin Cities with clergy? And we took clergy, including myself, to different spots in the Twin Cities that are of historical, emotional, psychological, whatever importance to the black community of the Twin Cities. And we hear the story. We don't speak unless you tell us we can speak. We don't ask any questions unless you tell us we can ask. You read a scripture, and then we have to preach from that scripture the following Sunday, no matter what it is. And Danny agreed. <laughs> he agreed, and so um, I was able to find two other white clergy that would do this with me. I was able to find two other white clergy who would do this with me because everybody's tied to electionary, or I wanted to do it during Lent, and we already have Lent plans, so we can't possibly change those plans. So three of us went and did this with Danny, and then by the last meeting, there were only two of us, only two of us that completed it out of three. And it was life-changing, and it caused me for four weeks to stand in front of the congregation I serve and say the words white supremacy and say that Jamar Clark and Philando Castile were murdered, words that people in my congregation didn't necessarily want to hear, but it's been a journey, and we're continuing it, 
And thanks to the unbelievable love, grace, and mercy that Danny Givens shows people like me and many other people, um, the journey will continue. And it's a journey that we all need to take to understand the impact and just the systemic nature of white supremacy. Well, I'm Pastor Danny Givens. I'm a senior pastor at Above Every Name Ministries here in St. Paul. Um, <clears throat> my morning started out a little different. I didn't have to unpack the ideas and notions of whether or not I'm a racist. <laughs> I had to figure out what I was going to wear to church this Sunday. <laughs> and so I woke up and I got dressed and scrambling, and my three-year-old son was kind of, you know, being a three-year-old, and I had to scramble to get him to daycare. So on the way out, I asked my wife, I said, does this look okay? She's like, do you have any other black shoes? I was like, they're packed away. She's like, where are you going? I said, first shoe. She said, oh, they're Unitarian. You'll be fine. <laughs> Thank y'all for letting me be me. Thank y'all. <laughs> I didn't have to put on no dress shoes or, you know, anything like that. Bless God. Um, <laughs> Thank you. And so I was, I was really thinking about, you know, what this means for us to be at this particular intersection. And when Lori had talked to me about wanting to do this, you know, I'm, I'm, the, I'm the guy who's crazy enough to say, hey, let's give it a try. You know, what's, what's the worst that could happen? I mean, you know, people won't show up if at, the, at least it would be you and I and we can talk and spend more time together. And I didn't really know how it was I was going to try it on. And it wasn't so much so that it was about um, biblical narratives. It wasn't that it was so much about where the sacred text and or writing came from, but that there was some type of uh, 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 piece that people could direct their focus at and the clergy could direct their focus at. Because when we started looking at, at white supremacy and I was listening, I was watching more than I was listening. Every time she said I was a racist up here, how many people just kind of was like, oh, just like really struggled with that. And I struggled, this is my friend, I struggled hearing her say that, but the reality is, is that these are the kind of unspoken affirmations that may sound crazy that we have to say out loud to ourselves to undo the colonialistic language, the narrative, and the ways in which you have been, be, been bewitched, fooled, and bamboozled by white supremacy as white people. I got to say that again, because colonialism, right, and the language therein has come in to such a degree that it has become so sophisticated, so, so precise, so strategic and methodic in its ways in which that it shows up that white people participate in white supremacy unbeknownst to their white selves. Amen. And that's not anything to put white guilt on my folks that have white fragility. Let's sit fragility on the very back pew and let's put courageous living on the front pew. And so as we begin to unpack this, I said, well, how is this thing really, how is this thing coming into our churches, synagogues, mosques, and congregations, houses of worship, and places where we gather with the, with the beloved? How is it that this has come here and has sanded the pews, 
has padded the carpet, has wired the sound so that we don't feel it, we don't see it, and we don't hear it in our congregations, and we for God sure don't hear it and see it behind our pulpit when it's spoken. So when she came to me, I was just like, for real? Actually, you said I was crazy. Yeah, but in my, that was the, like my politically correct, <laughs> but in my mind I was thinking, is this white woman for real? <laughs> but it was that thing like, okay, so, so what do we do? How do we unpack it? After all, our congregations are built upon stolen land that we have deeds to. How do you have deeds to something that's stolen? Did the indigenous folks of this land have deeds for you all? Say, hey, we're willing to buy and trade. Here's the deed for First Universalists. You come here and do as you please. And by the way, don't worry about mentioning anything about the sacrifice that we pay. Just have fun. Enjoy yourselves. Be astute and courageous in your pursuits to justice. Not just our houses of worship, I'm going to be quiet after this, but also the spaces and places that we cohabit, our homes that we create neighborhood associations in, that are associations that have colonialism and white supremacist narratives, that's me and my four, us and no more. I'm seeing my neighborhood that I grew up in not become gentrified, I'm seeing it gentrified. I'm seeing white folks pull up in front of my auntie's house who has been there since the late 70s on Selby and Victoria with a new white-owned vegan restaurant, J. Selby, which is a great restaurant, no diss to them, good food, all that. But it's this, it's this attraction in our community where now white folks pull up and look at my relatives, my cousins, my loved ones who have been in this particular community for three generations and look at us like we're the misfits that don't belong. Eat their great vegan meals, have great vegan conversations. Because <laughs> vegan people have great conversations, right? And, they, and, and no diss to the, to the vegan people, I'm just, you know, just talking, right? <laughs> I love y'all. But and then they re, and then and then folks retreat back to their spaces and places as if like you know, not even really realizing. And it's the nostalgia of it. I'm in nostalgic Rondo neighborhood, that street that white people would never drive down with their doors unlocked, let alone get out and part, you know, and go to eat. But we're here now, and so that's what we called to do. I'm gonna let Lori take over now, wrap up some stuff. Well, I'll let you wrap it. You're, you're better wrapping it up than I am. But I want to just say something about a phrase that Danny used, and it's that white fragility phrase. After going through this process, I'm not even going to call it a process, this journey, this incredible journey with Danny, um, whenever I hear white fragility, it, I, ugh, that's how I feel. It's just like, ugh. We don't have any right to be fragile. <laughs> there's, there's, this is not the time for us to not want to hear the truth. It's time for us to hear the truth, and it's time for us to hear it even when it makes us uncomfortable. Even when I have to face 
what it was like growing up in Mississippi, knowing that that's a state that I could never, ever live in again because they would drive me out. If I served a church there, they'd fire me for sure. Um, knowing that the places that I have lived, any of the systemic nature of white supremacy that I've participated in, I have to own that. I, I can't be fragile. Being fragile is not going to get us to where we need to be as a people, all people. It's not going to, it's just not going to get us there. It's okay if you get upset. It's okay if you get your feelings hurt. It's okay if you get mad because you've heard white supremacy said so many times now in how many minutes that you don't ever want to hear it again. That's okay. Um, I'm not worried about people being fragile anymore because white supremacy never worried about anybody else being fragile. So, yeah, sorry, I just can't handle that term anymore. Is that okay? Sorry. I wasn't jumping Danny on that. I'm actually jumping all of us. <laughs> but, yeah, so when you hear that term, if you're sitting around and you hear people say something like, well, you know, we can't, maybe we should say white privilege instead of white supremacy because it's, you know, it's just a little softer. I had someone say that to me couple weekends ago and I said well we could except what you have to understand is there's white supremacy and due to that people believe that the color white of skin is supreme to any other color that gives us privilege which is called white privilege so you can talk about both but white supremacy is the issue so watch we need to watch how we use language but not just so that we're politically correct we need to watch it so that in our hearts we understand what it is that we're saying and doing. And it's okay. If you're fragile, so be it. <laughs> there are hundreds of thousands of other people that their fragility has never been taken into account. And it's time that we get over that part. So that's all I wanted to and say. Here's, here's among, I know you all are wondering, like, well, what did they do? Where did they go? You want to hear all the ins and outs of it, right? And so I'll give you just a little bit of an overview. So we went to four different locations, four different sites um, that had narratives of truth, trauma, and resiliency among people of color. Now, I don't mean that I can itemize the experience of the people of color who, who went through and who endured the truth, trauma, and are still doing their best to have the resiliency of those places, but this was the kind of framework that had to be set up in order to kind of put it into a lens where my white clergy friends could digest it and make it palatable. And so when she talks about they're not being able to talk, and so what would happen is, is that folks would become open. We would come in and I would send her, I would send her to space, open it with some kind of reading, some type of reflection, prayer at times, sometimes silence. There would be a check-in among us to see where folks were. So it wasn't just like this, you know, uh, uh, dehumanizing experience where white people had to be quiet while a black person talked in that sense. But there was this, this moment of connection that transcends socioeconomic status, transcends our religious narratives and or scarring, that transcends where we came from, that even transcends color of skin so that we can connect at a level to be able to hear the frequency of the truth and the trauma and the resiliency therein and hold space with one another. 
White fragility will cause us to become undone at the point where either of those particular frameworks become uncomfortable or too complex or too overbearing. And so we went and we visited a spot in Rondo. And in Rondo, we watched the video. My family is, my grandmother uh, lost a home um, during the highway and all that. So we watched the video. I shared some stories. There was some scripture. I went to a couple other historical sites there, showed them some things. And then we went to, uh, from there, we went to one of the oldest black, uh, one of the oldest black churches. Um, there's two in the Twin Cities. We went there, had a time to kind of hear the narrative of truth, trauma, and resiliency that existed there. And then from there, we went to the way over North Minneapolis, where we know is now the fourth precinct. Um, but we actually spent time at um, Appetite for Change, which is adjacent to Breaking Bread Cafe, um, went there where a sister friend of mine gave us, uh, who was a, a Northside resident, gave us kind of the purview of that. And then finally, we ended at uh, the Philando Castile Peace Gardens. And for those of you who may not know what that is or where that is, the Philando Castile Peace Garden is the site in Falcon Heights where Philando Castile was slain. And so here's a piece about fragility that I want you to know that we broke through. So we came there that morning, Reverend Lori, hi, and Tammy. Tammy, Reverend Tammy. And we sat there, and it was April, I think it was April. It was April. It was this kind of really serene kind of spring day. It was nice. The trees were budding. The grass was, you know, had soft blades beneath us. We had some tablets, and they all came astute and ready to go, not knowing what they were going to get into. And just we were there in this, in this sacred place. And we sat, and we were quiet. We were quiet maybe for about three or four minutes. And while we were quiet with our eyes closed, I said, you just received a phone call from Valerie Castile. She said, my son Philando was just murdered and I want you to do the eulogy. And then I asked them to open their eyes and to write the eulogy right there. Now, white fragility elicits all of this. But the truth, trauma, and resiliency should call you to muster up that fortitude, that space inside of you, that, that part inside of you that says there's no such thing as other people's children, and that calls you to put the pen teary-eyed, trembling, full of angst, worrying about wanting to be perfect but not concerned about punctuation, and puts that pen to the pad and begins to write whatever it is that the holy places upon your heart to write about the truth of what happened and the trauma that exists in that particular space. And how will you get the people back to a place of resiliency. It's no time to worry about whether or not he had his seatbelt on. 
There's no time to worry about whether or not Yanez or whatever. There's no time to worry about the semantics and the details. You have a need of one of your parishioners, of one of your beloved from your community that a threat to justice anywhere is a, is a, is a threat to injustice everywhere. You have a need that is before you and it's calling you to put the cart before the horse in this moment and do something illogical. And come outside of yourself. And at no point are you to say, as a white person, I'm giving this eulogy. Y'all follow what I'm saying? And this is the sacred reflections, the spiritual journey that we went on. Now, that's just a small little synopsis. Good news is this. Reverend Justin Schroeder and I are in kind of negotiation right now about bringing something like this to first view and seeing how this could happen. But I can tell you, come on up, Reverend Lord, I can tell you that for, as she said, I feel the same way. It was so transformational to have an opportunity to share our collective truth that sometimes seems like it's only experienced individually. But this is a collective truth. And it's a collective truth that we have the bandwidth. We may not have the skill yet, but we have the bandwidth. We have the capacity. We have the resources. We have the assets. We have the tenacity. We have the courage as well as the ability. But my question is this. Will we allow the fragility of our past experiences, the skepticism of the narratives that we've been taught, or the excuses of, I have a friend of color. There are people of color who live in our church. There are people of color that I, I spend time with on a regular basis. It's not just enough to be in proximity to people of color. We have to get to this place where we, my, when I say we, I'm talking to my white brothers and sisters, where we have to become in these sacred places like we are when we're over as tourists in Europe, as tourists in Egypt. We want to know every detail. We try to steep ourselves in the car. I just left Italy, and I saw how American tourists want to know everything. They, could, they bombarded the tour guide with so many questions, wanted to know everything so that they can come back and articulate their experience as a true and authentic one. You should want to know everything. It's not just enough for our churches to be sanctuary churches. We need to expand sanctuary in ways that show up for people who are often invisible. So thank you. I don't know if you have any closing words or thoughts. God bless you.